let me ask you some questions. So when you say, what do you do with a man who is wise and holds space, but not so much in the bedroom, does that mean in life you can trust him, but in the bedroom you have to, what, tell him what to do? Or, or you don't trust him sexually? So what, what happens that makes you go, well, he's not wise and holding space in the bedroom? Is he giggling? Is he no, playful? No but it, it's immature. Is there, is there moments where he snaps out of that or not really? So he's actually living up to the very thing that you expected of him. How shall I say this? You've answered all your own questions. And what I mean by that is it sounds like you're well-matched in the sense that um, when you needed that kind of wise and, and solid man, he was there. And when and at that particular moment, a deeper sex than what he could give you would have been extremely threatening. Mm -hmm. So, so you, are, you are and were well-matched. Mm -hmm. Now, what happens in a good relationship is that um, growth happens usually a little bit like in a seesaw, mm -hmm. right? One person makes a few steps and then the other person kind of falls a little bit behind or you think they fall behind because now you've just found, you know, the new holy grail and, you know, and they, it's never been an issue, but there was nothing to bounce off, right? Or they are, they are not there yet. Either which way, um, there is this kind of a seesaw um, moving with each other. Ideally, of course, there's always the option that two people just grow apart but it sounds like from what you're saying he is essentially as steady and as as predictable as he's always been mm -hmm. except that now you want something else mm -hmm. right and that's in a certain way it's going to be very destabilizing mm -hmm. for both of you because he won't necessarily understand that the thing that has worked for so long is no longer working And you are not going to be just happy with the thing that worked for so long, even though it worked for so long. Right? So you, you can't really speak about it without causing issues. You do the thing you do when he becomes the kind of man that you want. Right? When you said, uh, well, yes, he has moments where he is the way you want him to be, and it is when you become that which brings that forth, right? Mm -hmm. Because one of the things that's, of course, very important to understand is that if he would have been the kind of guy that you want him to be now back then, mm -hmm. he would have violated you, right? Yeah. So, yeah. so he's a, clearly a good man and he's clearly not a, a rapist or, or, or somebody who violates you. So, so he's trained his whole being mm -hmm. to be the somewhat boyish, you know, gentle sensitive to your particular expression, uh, maybe to the detriment of his own development, right? And now you're going, well, I have grown. Uh, where are you, right? So now he needs to grow into that or unlearn some of the things he taught himself so that he would be an appropriate partner for you. So the best you can do is be the kind of woman with whom he can do the kind of things that you want to have done to you. Because we can assume 
safely, if you've been with him for that long successfully with having had some sexual, let's call it trauma, right, that he's finely tuned to the fluctuation of your emotion and your heart and your opening and your closing. So the only way that he's going to go further than what he, what he can feel appropriate is if you're actually open, right? So you said that ever so often when you become the kind of woman that you want to be, it kind of almost overcomes him, right? That's a really good sign. Because that means your body, not your head or your mouth, but your body is giving him permission to go beyond what he trained himself to, to hold, right? So when you are really, really honest and, and really look at it, you, we have to say that he's actually holding perfect space in the bedroom. Like absolute perfect space. This is a man who's never gone beyond what you were able to go to. That's, a, that's, that's an actual space holder. When you feel that, that he's always known where to stop, and then when you are available for more, he can give more. That's pretty awesome. But of course, it puts the oldness right in your court because your body needs to say yes, but not open in that old-fashioned kind of, you know, uh, uh, open past your closures way because that's, uh, that's very traumatizing, right? But in the having larger and larger capacity to be who you want to be. Right. And clearly you're doing that because when you do that, that invites him to be what you now want to experience. So um, it sounds to me from an outsider's view, right, and having, you know, counsel couples for what, 26 years now, that he's, you're actually good, right, and you're actually going there, but it might be Let's put it this way. The ideological ideas might be a little bit ahead of your body. Of your body, yeah. exactly. Yeah. What, do they, what, what do they call it? The, your karma has run over your dogma. You know? <laughs> yeah. Meaning, meaning um, the idea of how it should be might be a little bit further ahead of where your body is. And so your practices are such that you create the capacity for the kind of engagement, you could say openness, but openness not from a place of wrenching yourself open, but from a place of relaxation. And that's a huge difference. There's a huge difference between white-knuckling your opening and backing off enough from your own ideas that your body can relax and actually open. You know, it's sometimes um, when you... Um, when you try to stretch something, the, the act of trying to stretch it actually makes it tighter mm -hmm. because the muscle has to guard against the, injury, the, the potential injury. So it's a little bit like this. As you relax a little bit, a greater, greater opening will occur. Mm -hmm. And clearly, as you have uh, expressed yourself more in that domain, he just went there. Yeah. Well, 
Well, no, because once again, you have to kind of really be careful that you're not going with these stereotypes that have never been proven to do be anything but stereotypes. Nobody takes the lead. It's always a co-creative process. Only an idiot takes a woman somewhere where she can't, where she can't go, right? Uh, meaning uh, there is a leading and following and there's a taking and being taken, but a good taker only takes you as far as he can responsibly take you and not further. Because the injury and the snapback from taking somebody further than they can go is huge, particularly in a long-term relationship. Right? So, yes, he will take the lead, but he will take the lead, and this is the very important piece, always um, take the lead in response to the invitation and not taking the lead and somehow hoping that the invitation will follow or that you'll surrender, right? And so in a classic tantric practice, the reason we're doing all these things, which are all precursors to those things, is so that your body is such that it can um, e easefully and... and um, willingly surrender when the conditions are right and so that your body is an invitation like an open source of energy so to speak for the right set of circumstances and when the circumstances are not right there is no energy available no so your job always will be to supply the energy only if you can supply the energy can he supply the depth or the penetration or the lead, however you want to call that. Um, the, the limpness of the surrender isn't really how lead happens. right? It's an active invitation. It just doesn't look like this. Do this. It's, a, it's, a, it's this, this feeling of the sensation in the body, to me, is always um, like you're. Have you ever sucked in smoke? Like you know, when you like make those smoke rings or something, and you can kind of suck the smoke in and blow it back out. You know, and, and you can create these like kind of vacuums almost. That's kind of what it feels like. You, your invitation isn't a direction. It's a yielding that creates a, a you know, that creates an opening. You, to say it very crudely, you can't fuck something that doesn't have an opening. Mm. Right? So the lead is in direct response to the opening. Mm. So your job is to create the opening. His job is to go in. And that's why it's never leading following in the classic way. Because, of course, this is a leading in. But as an invitation and the, the, the penetration is only as the result of the invitation. You don't penetrate till the invitation's there. That's called rape yeah. and violation, right? Not only in the purely sexual sense, but in the emotional, psychic, subtle body. You know, in any realm, it, there has to be a hole for a penetration to happen. So 
if you want more of that leading, strong penetration, the the hole, so to speak, has to be created. The hole, in that sense, is the um, invitation of your open, relaxed body. Because any bracing on yours, on your side, will make him back off into safe territory. Rightly so. Right. So even though your fantasies and everybody else's, for the most part, you know, um, once the uh, horror, you know, wench, come here, you know, like, <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> no, no. Um, pirates are just so great for that, right? <laughs> oh, yes, or a Viking raider or something like that, right? Yes, it, yeah, exactly. Somebody, somebody who will. But once again, there's a difference between rape and ravishment, and that's the openness and availability of the body for that interaction. Right? So, so it sounds actually like you got a really good one, like really, really good one. You know? And so you'll, you'll just play that, right? There will be, like, like you said, there'll be moments where he'll just go, what just happened? It took me over. Well, that's the sign of good... Uh, erotic friction, right? Where where things just happen because the poles are right and the situation's right, and there's an invitation to penetrate, and then he can take over and he can lead, and he doesn't have to micromanage your clench, right? And when he doesn't have to micromanage your clench, then he can go to places where you both enjoy it. Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, so you should, you know, meaning if you have that kind of sex, it's a bit embarrassing afterwards, right? <laughs> but you live together, mm-hmm. not when you are like, uh, you know, on some crazy Tinder date or so. Well, then you just go separate ways and you go, oh, shit, did I just do that? Oh, well. Anyway, next, right? But with your own very own husband with whom you lead, uh, you know, probably a, a very lovely household, uh, when you suddenly start swinging off the rafter, so to speak, there's a little bit of a like a <laughs> the next morning, <laughs> and that's great, right? Yeah, but <laughs> but you know what I mean. Like when you go a little bit further than you usually go, it's like this. <laughs> you know, you have a little bit of a shy moment, and that's fantastic because what that means is that your sex life, your intimate life takes on a life that's separate from the rest of your life, which is very important because the rules that apply in your harmonious home life are not the rules that apply in that sexual play. And um, it's great, right? So yeah, there's nothing wrong with having a little bit of a snapback as long as you don't put it on each other, right? Because that's the way it goes. You expand and you have a little, and then... The body relaxes and then becomes the new normal. And then you expand again, little, ah, and then if you don't, you know, do all kinds of weird stuff about it or process it endlessly, mm-hmm. the system relaxes, that becomes the new normal. And so over a fairly short period of time, you'll notice that the quality of the engagement just gets better and better and better. And where you started out is no longer where it's at. Good sex follows the same rules as magic. You can never speak about it. <laughs> it destroys, for real. It destroys, it destroys the entire thing. 
one of the most detrimental things to really good sex is that you talk about it. Now, if there is an issue, right, then you need to talk about it. But if you had one of those moments where he goes, shit, I don't even know what happened to me, and you have this silly grin on your face and you're going, yeah, this was much better than usual, when you, then you have to let it be. And you let that magic, so to speak, unfold in your nervous system. And your nervous system gets informed by that so it can build the next time. And, you know, usually the way it goes is you have a great time and then you have a kind of, then it's like, oh, well, eh, here we are back to school. Then, but then it happens again and so on. So when you discuss it, it completely um, thwarts the, the, the attempt of the nervous system to integrate. You can say I had a great time, but that's about as far as you can take the feedback. Before all else, right, before we go into any lineage practices or sexual practices or tantric practices per se, the absolute basis, so to speak, of um, being a human number one, and then being a woman, meaning having a woman's body um, as a human, has a set of requirements that are useful if you want to live uh, a life that's not just subsistence, right? And so what that is, is your ability to be in your body and use your full capacity as a human being. So that's one way of saying that. So what that means is that uh, you're not just ahead, you know, you're not just thinking, but you avail yourself of the faculties of your body, the somatic ability of your body, which is immense, while using all the other faculties you have, right? Because your brain alone is no good. Your body alone is uh, no good either, so to speak, right? It's just like... so so um embodiment you know when are we not in our body well when we die but in the meantime we're always in our body a better way to say it would be being sensitive to the signals your body sends and how you're sensitive to the signals your body sends is you are is a twofold process you can feel and you can translate what you're feeling into something usable. So, the, the, you know, and within that, there comes the ability to process difficult feelings and sensations and the, um, the ability to widen your capacity or, or strengthen your capacity, right? So that as a human, you use uh, the information your body gives you and you combine it with the other faculties you have, thinking, for instance, right? Um, so that you can navigate your life with the most information for decision-making, for raising your children, uh, for making money, for making love, for having pleasure in your body, for sensing what your body needs, um, regulating your eating, you know, like all of those kind of things. So embodiment is a very, very fundamental tool to be um, optimally functioning in, in the world, in your body. 
So that that's it. That that's clear. I'm assuming, right? Um, that said, your number one uh, tool in the toolkit has to be your ability to sense what's happening or feel the sensations that happen in the body. Well, how do you do that? Well, you become sensitive to those sensations. Steve, who you might meet tomorrow, um, talks about ambient noise level. You've heard him. Uh, you've met Steve. Uh, meaning, uh, however loud the noises are, you know, the, the lower noises disappear. So if you have a lot of stress and a lot of social media and a lot of emails and a lot of environmental stressors, the, the sensations of your body aren't being heard. They're there. You know? And only when the body starts screaming is it louder than the, you know, the ambient noise level, so to speak. So you sensitize yourself to the sensations of your body, so you become more aware of them. And at the same time, you lower the ambient noise level in the form of stress, trauma, um, environmental factors, pressure, you know, like all of those kind of things. Once you are aware of what's, what, and you can feel what the body is saying, this includes intuition, or intuition is a big part of this, I should say, then you can learn how to translate the sensations of your body into something that you can use. For instance, um, you know, intuition is one of those things. Intuition isn't, uh, you know, the, the realm of psychics. It's having a lot of data. The more data points you have, the better your intuition, meaning you can make a much clearer determination of what's really happening because you have so many data points. Perfect example is wine tasting. Right? If you've never had wine... Uh, and somebody hands you wine out of a box, let's say, right? The best you can say is, I like it, I don't like it. That's, that's the best you can say. Mm, this tastes good. Yeah, not my thing, right? But once you get distinctions, right, people can tell you, well, roll it to the back of the tongue. Does it taste like a wood, you know, or a fruit, or a this or a that? Is it sharp? Is it sour? Is it, you know, the color? So then you learn all these distinctions. And if you have enough distinctions, you can be one of those people. And there's, of course, a certain amount of talent as well. But if you have enough distinctions, you can pick up that thing and go, oh, that's a Chateau Margaux 1986. And people are like, oh, magic. No, distinctions. And so psychic ability, so to speak, or intuitive ability is how many distinctions you have. And anybody, there are several people in here who, you were a therapist, right? Or are a therapist. You work in that field, right? After a while, somebody walks in and you pretty much know what's happening, right? But not because you are some, you know, wise Jedi master, but because you have so many distinctions and they are so ingrained uh, that, I mean, I can see somebody who's dissociated from a mile away, literally. I can look down from, I was somewhere in a hotel room, and I was looking down on the street, like on the other side, and I, I, I could tell you what drug that person was on. So I ran a drug rehab for a, a number of years, so I can, I can tell you the kind of junkie somebody is from, like, far away, right? And it's not, that's not mystery it's you know it's what it is 
distinctions. So number one, you train for distinctions. You train for sensitivity. Number two, you learn how to release from your body things that don't need to be stuck there somatically, right? Uh, I don't know if you know anything about the work of somebody like Peter Levine or Bessel van der Kolk, you know, who are these somatic therapists who, who uh, have really um, researched very strongly on how can the body release trauma. Because you can talk about it all day long, it's, it still doesn't release from the trauma. So sensitizing, de-traumatizing or de-contaminating de, uh, if we don't want to go with trauma per se. So those are your two things. With that, you then become current in your emotions and you're capable of um, translating what you're feeling into cognition. So those are the base practices. So when you hear me talk about things like uh, moving what you're feeling, which we did last night a bit and, and a little bit more this morning, right? When you hear me talk about nonlinear movement, um, those are the basic practices that allow you to become current, both in your ability to perceive and your ability to process. From there, you, can, you have uh, artistic choices, so to speak, right? So that's why there's so many practices, because from there you can kind of branch out, so to speak. You can have pleasure practices, sensitized to the pleasure that's already always in the body and uh, bridge the gap between, you know, deadness in the body and orgasm, right? There's a huge gap and you can bridge that by working with background pleasure and pleasure practices. So that's one form of movement practice, so to speak. Devotional practice, which is what you did, ritual or devotional practice, which is uh, putting that sensitivity into the service of the divine. Right? It's a very beautiful orientation. Sexual practice, in the sense, not in the sense of pleasure, which is sensual and sexual, but sexual practice as in um, learning skills to create strong erotic friction, polarity, attraction, however you want to call it, with another human. Right? Then um, there's... A, we could call them healing or loving kindness practices where you put your capacity into the service of serving someone else for their well-being right so that there's whole practices around that sometimes in the hindu traditions that's also called bhakti it's also a form of devotion right so it goes into the devotional aspect as well but you can also use it for healing and loving kindness. So there's all these different aspects, and I'm sure I'm forgetting at least 10 more right, that you can do. But those are the main, the main strands of practices that you will hear me talk about. And they have different purposes. They're all, they're all stem from that same place, which is being current with your emotion and being able to listen to what is being expressed through the body and then from there you branch out so in an ideal world if you really only have 15 minutes a day um, I'd spend five minutes or maybe even 10 minutes on 
being current with your emotions and sensitive to what's happening in the body to begin with. And then let's say add on the devotional aspect if devotion is something that you're very dedicated to. Right. And leave it at that. Well, and I, from what you're just saying, then it's not time for relational practices, right? I think a devotional, a, a, a being current with your emotion, maybe getting rid of some of the stuff that is still lingering, so like releasing stuff, which you can do with moving what you're feeling, um, and then some devotional practice so that you're, um, you know, so that you're expansive in your in your reach, so to speak, sounds perfect. But maybe at some point you do want to do, uh, you know, want to attract a relationship, then you would maybe instead of doing a devotional practice, do relational practice, right? But uh, so these things are not mutually exclusive. Um, they are based on what's needed. Well, it depends on it depends on if you have a relationship or if you want a relationship, right? If you want a relationship... Um, you do practices that would allow you, the first thing that you would learn is you would learn how to discern what is a good man. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that, that's step one, right? And so the, there's specific practices on how you gain discernment. But once again, the base practice is that you can actually translate what you're feeling um, in present time. Because how often have you sat somewhere with somebody and had a conversation and then you leave and you're in the car and you're like, motherfucker. (laughs) What did he mean with that, right? And you had like a 15 minute, 20 minute, two hour, five hour delay till the knowledge that your body had finally filtered up in the head. So that's not a good place to be in when you're dating, not only from the place of discernment, but also you, don't, you actually are not capable of giving consent if you don't know what's happening down there. Right? I mean, one of the huge... I've been interviewed up and down the wazoo in the last you know, month or two about Me Too. You know, one of the real, real issues with consent is you, if you can't say yes, you can't say no, or the other way around, if you can't say no, you can't say yes. Your consent means shit if you're not capable of expressing a strong no, and you can't express a strong no if you don't know what's happening in your body. Because most women at, at some point in their lives have consented to something where they afterwards went like, why did I do that? Right? I was saying to somebody the other day, there's men who get laid because it's easier to give them a blowjob than to turn them away. Right? That, that's what women say. And that's a really bad deal. Right? Because it means you, 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 don't, you have less um, respect for yourself uh, then you have, or, or you know, or it's easier for you to disrespect yourself than to work your no muscle. So you know, so the first practice, if you wanted to get back into a relationship, is the twofold practice of being able to utter a strong no and also know when it's a real yes, and discern with whom you want to have yeses and nos. Right, and then from there, there's other practices. So. Um, but since that's not really where you're going right now, I think a combination of moving what you're feeling and devotion 
is, is very appropriate for you. An, you know, I mean, we're talking about really important things here. And there is many ways to slice them. And there is, of course, schools of thoughts that say, just follow your bliss. And then there's schools of thoughts that are like, you know, the more German schools of thoughts. Uh, you know, work, 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 or like Protestant work ethic or whatever, right? And, and, and everything in between. In, in, I mean, a lot of spiritual practice requires really, really hardcore discipline and things like that. So there's a wide spectrum that you can con consider. So when we just talk about your career right now, what we're going to talk about is... Um, if you want a career, not a job, right? Because there's a huge difference there. But if you want a career, you're going to... Ha Let me see if I can say this. You're going to have to, and also you're going to want to, um, have mastery, right? Meaning... Um, it's not worth pursuing a career, like a, a, a calling of some sort. It doesn't matter if it's your ultimate calling or not, if you're not good at it. Mm -hmm. And most things that are proper careers require a, an enormous amount of grunt work to get good at it. Mm -hmm. right. You will have to done, have done, you know, you're a doctor, right? You're a doctor. So you... you you know, you there's people in here who have spent night after fucking night after fucking night of residency grinding their head in the meat grinder, right? Um, and it's horrible. And um, I, for one, couldn't... I, I studied medicine and I, I bailed because I, for one, didn't have what it took to withstand... I was, uh, my first rotation was uh, an ICU with 20 beds where every two days... 15 of those 20 beds died, and I just didn't have what that took. I just didn't have it. So my hat's off to anybody who does. Wasn't my thing. Wasn't my thing also because my calling wasn't, it wasn't quite developed yet. But in the things that I became really good at, I ground and ground and ground and ground. Right? I did over 10 years of... Mm -hmm. People have heard me say this over and over because it's, it, it took that much. I'd say between eight and ten clients a day, five days a week for over ten years with maybe a week off a year and sometimes longer hours, right? And that's why I'm proficient in certain, you know, sets of circumstances. Same with teaching. I mean, you know, I've taught and taught and taught and taught and taught and taught under extremely adverse circumstances. Still do. Now, I had to teach a workshop. That's a whole other story, but uh, let's not go there. You know, it's not one of those, let me show you how, um, you know, I put my head in the meat grinder. Everyone who is good at something has done that. And furthermore, the only way that you can innovate is after you have assimilated, right? You imitate, then you assimilate, and then you innovate. People who innovate before they have assimilated are hacks, and there's lots of them out there. You see them on Facebook announcing the next breakthrough workshop of some shit they've just discovered, and everybody else goes, 
Yeah, <laughs> you know, we've, yes, that's where you get when you apply yourself somewhere, somehow, right? And that's how it goes. And so from that viewpoint, if you want to become a midwife, a good midwife, a midwife who can tell, you know, when a transition happens or, you know, when something's wrong versus when somebody's squeamish or you will have to have put in enormous amounts of time. And then furthermore, of course, there's a bit more of a esoteric aspect to it where, this sounds weird when I say it like that, certain sets of jobs or circumstances require certain kind of engagements. And you're not going to become really good at birth, like, you know, crazy wisdom midwife good at birth unless you know how to navigate the early morning hours or the late hours of the night and know how to navigate your body in that situation and know how to navigate your body in some pretty extreme set of, you know, sleep deprivation and stuff like that. <laughs> and that's, those are things to consider, right? That in your apprenticeship, so to speak, and every career or every real profession has an apprenticeship, you're going to be fucked up. You're going to be fucked up for long periods of time. Right? That's not to say that you want to uh, treat yourself in a way that you burn out, because of course, I'm sure you're well aware that nurses have an enormous burnout rate based on the healthcare system and blah, 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 blah. You know, so you definitely have to temper what I just said with good common sense on what your body can handle and what's decent and what's uh, responsible in the bigger scheme of things. And for that, it's good to have um, a partner and friends and mentors, true mentors, not just people who want to get you into the machinery of whatever they're doing, who can say, you could hang with this or mm, got to take some rest, right? So within, within that said, it wouldn't be um, out of the ordinary to expect that you're going to go through a period of real, uh, real apprenticeship, you know. And if you decide that that's your path, or if you think it's your path and you want to explore if it's your path, that's, I would definitely advise to go there as fully as you can. Because if it's not your path, the full engagement with it will reveal that it's not your path way earlier than when you dabble. And then you've lost a lot of time. Right? So that's one aspect. The other aspect, of course, is that you have to see your career in the bigger scheme of what you want out of your life. And that, of course, nobody can answer but you, because, of course, there are certain things that happen when you're a woman that are unpleasant and unfair, which is your biological clock, right, for one, your sexual market value. That sounds horrible, but there is such a thing, right? And, and, and we, we can't pretend there isn't because there is. Um, your values your 
values in relationship, how you want your relationship to be, how many children you want, when you want children, how you want to raise your children, what kind of partner you want, how much money you want, where you want to live. Right? All of those are considerations that have to be aligned with your career choice in a way that you're not wasting four or five years to then decide that now, shit, you're 39, right? Or however, when you decide that this wasn't it and now it's almost too late to have children and now you have to go through, you know, all kinds of, you know, you, you get the idea. So there's, there's it's, it's, it's a complicated set of determinations that you have to make to know um, what's the best, choice and then of course there's also the mystery of how shit unravels or unfurls right so <laughs> sorry <laughs> it's not exactly the path answer but um, it's really good to have someone like I said a mentor is usually best a good therapist sometimes can do that for you or, you know somebody who you, you trust um, who can ask those questions of you so that you don't get sidetracked in some eddy of, you know, some, some, some dead end of trying to prove something to yourself. Mm. Yeah. Just because you said you were going to. Yeah. <laughs> that's, a, that's a very complicated set of circumstances. Uh, and I would have to really, really dig in to give you a decent answer, meaning I, wouldn't, I need, would need to see him, I would need to see you. I would have to look at the dynamics of where's the resentment and, and things of that nature to give you actual advice. Right? Yes, but not in this context. Yeah, 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 not in this context, because that's a, that's a, that's a very, very distinct consideration, because what you're describing... And, and this is, you know, this is why I, I'm, I'm so loath of people who always have that path. Well, the masculine does this and the feminine does this because it's not that simple. The dynamics are pretty simple. But once, once you're in a relationship, there is you, there's the other, and then there's the relationship, right? You're no longer just dealing with the dynamics, Yes, we all know we want to surrender to the deep masculine and we want the man to guide us and men want their women to show them whatever, blah, 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 right? That's all true, true enough in, in, a, in a vacuum. But you're not in a vacuum. And the people who talk about it in a vacuum, you can have like these amazing, you know, amazing and the feminine, right? If you, if you never share a bathroom, if you never have to consider, if you have separate households, if everybody makes their own money and, uh, you know, you don't share a life and you don't have any social engagements whatsoever, ever, because you never leave the fucking house ever, right? Um, you don't have to live a life. You can just focus on polarity. It's pretty easy to go to somebody's house whom you trust and like, right? Fuck them, have a great evening, and then go separate ways and feel amazing. Yeah, exactly. You live together, you have three dogs, you have bills, you, you, yeah. you have decisions to make. You know, somebody's got to buy the fucking milk, mm -hmm. right? So when you have that kind of a life, 
your relationship relies on cooperation. It relies on sameness. It relies on shared values, uh, good communication, love, um, respect, right? It, and, and those things are what makes a relationship a good relationship. Those are the things that kill passion, right? And nobody wants to hear that because... Because everybody wants to swing off the rafters, as you know, we discussed, um, and be taken and all of that. But being, be, having that strong of a polarity requires that you spend very little time together. And actually, the, the words polarity, right, and the words erotic friction come from the fact that there is friction, you are not going to see eye to eye when you have strong sexual attraction. We all know this because that's why we fuck guys who we would not be seen with, right? <laughs> exactly. You'd go to the guy's house. You, you, you know, I mean, I don't want to go. <laughs> you get the idea, right? Because the, the, the utter difference in styles, in being, in lifestyle, in opinion makes for that strong erotic friction, makes for that big arc. So it is, it is utterly impossible to maintain that big arc and have the kind of relationship that most people want to have when they don't want to have, when, they don't, when they're not having sex, which is for most people at least 23 hours a day or more, right? <laughs> so, so that's the real difficulty, and that's certainly always been the thing that really I had to deal with in my, sec you know, in my, in my counseling practice because the, the, the passion, the attracted, that strong attraction will die as you create more of the things that you want in your life. Now you can learn how to create strong attraction and those are just mechanics. Right? You make yourself different, you spend time apart, somebody leads, somebody follows, you learn how to open your bodies, the other person learns how to penetrate, you learn how to invite. You know, those are mechanics and they're skills and you can learn them. However, and this is why I'm not giving you the pat answer of just saying spend time apart and blah, blah, blah. No, because, and this is why I'm saying I'm not giving you that answer, because you're way past that point the relationship has developed a resentful quality. And nothing will kill passion as quickly and as thoroughly and relentlessly as resentments. Unspoken communication, subtexts, undercurrents. Um, I don't know how else to say it, right? You get the idea. And at that point, none of the other shit makes any difference. Right? So... The key in that particular, yeah, I mean, I know it's bad news, but it's not really bad news because you have to call a spade a spade. And you can't go to all the sex therapy in the world and get all the dildos lined up and whatever, spend, do the 15 minutes of erotic touching every evening. You're not going to feel like it because there's a festering boil underneath that needs to be popped, right? And that will require actual therapy like actual sit your ass down 
unpack. You don't have to unpack your childhood or stuff like that. But like actual, you know what? Every time you rejected me is still in my body and fuck you and whatever, right? I mean, it's, it's very unpleasant. And so the key to that is usually that you start with individual therapy. Okay, good. And only when you have popped that boil of the resentment enough that you can actually communicate that, not in a processing way, but in a full-bodied way, right? Because, of course, the problem with processing things is you're just talking about it, right? Nothing happens done here. So you have to connect, once again, the body with the mind, and then you can have the kind of couple therapy where it's not just lip service, right? And you have to do release work, and, you know, you probably have to have some body work, and blah, blah, blah. It's doable. doesn't even take that long, but the key is to get underneath the resentment. And the problem is most people don't want to go there because it, uh, it threatens the status quo. Yeah, well, that's always true, meaning nobody else is going to be able to give you the thing that you can't have if you don't have a slot for the chip, so to speak. Like you said, he probably loves you in ways that you can't perceive because you don't have a receptacle for it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, and that's, a, that's, that's also another whole other conversation, but between the two of you, um, there's you, there's him, and then there's the joint dynamics. And the joint dynamics will have to be addressed as joint dynamics for anything to give. Because you can decide you're going to have sex tonight and then walk in and your whole body just goes, yeah. right? And, of course, that's a very dicey thing because, you know, some people will go, well, just go past the resistance. Well, then you're violating yourself. And also, why would you want to do that to your partner? I mean, nobody wants to be fucked by somebody who doesn't want to fuck up. Right? I mean, it's, it's extremely disrespectful. So you have to just deal with the fact that you have a massive curl. And there's options, right? The option is you do work through it or you um, accept that that's the way it is and you go and get it somewhere else or you leave. Those are all valuable and valid, I should say, options because um, any relationship can be arranged any which way between two consenting adults right but that the the key of course is that both people have to be in on it and I know people who are in very 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 loving marriages and very deeply committed and have so for many many years and don't have sex at all with each other yeah I know people like that and they're super happy but they are super happy because they've decided that that was the course of action because they were either incompatible to begin with which happens, right? Because if you, for instance, get together for career reasons or just to have children and and uh, deep God sex isn't what you signed up, well, you're probably not going to, you know, it might not be available from somebody who didn't sign up for that. But everything else was really good. And then I have another couple I work with or have worked with for many years where... Um, that, that it's just it wasn't there anymore and the resentment and everything else had built to a point where it couldn't be recovered 
but they really, really deeply loved each other and they're very, very loving. They just don't have sex. It's not the end of the world, right? Well, to them, I'm not saying that's not true for you, but to them, they came to a point where it's just like, well, why endlessly beat our heads against a wall when the moment we take that out of the equation, everything works fantastic, right? So I'm not saying that that's what you have to choose, but what I'm saying is there is other ways to handle issues, many, many creative ways to handle issues that don't mean breaking up and don't mean cheating necessarily. Right? Well, also, you know, there's, there's, um, there's always the chance or, or the, the possibility that um, you won't have that depth of love and engagement with somebody else. You might have great sex, but they might be emotionally unavailable. Yeah. So it's a matter of what's most important to you. It's a matter of how much time you want to spend on it. These are some freaking complicated things to deal with. Um, and time moves on, right? That's the other thing, of course. And uh, so there are certain things in a long-term relationship that you can let ride for a little while. Right? And then there are certain things you can't. You know, you just can't. Women's sexuality, sexuality in general, right? And nowadays it's actually the men who have it a bit rougher than uh, the women because men's sexuality is now considered predatory, right? Which is also uh, rather horrible. But women's sexuality for many, 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 many thousands of years um, has been considered dangerous, because it is. <laughs> Meaning your, um, your power via uh, conception, right, and birth, and with that um, feeling intuition, right, because one of the reasons women can feel so much is not because they're superior beings, it's because, that too, but, um, <laughs> but because you can't successfully raise offspring, which is what we are built for, right? Unless you can feel where they're at and what they need um, and feel danger. And it's the same for men, by the way. I mean, men cannot successfully fulfill their role in the evolutionary nature if they can't feel and sense and track predator, uh, predators as well as prey, right? So you're built... Um, for incredible power in the form of procreation, birthing, um, healing, uh, you know, the wielding of, of healing power. So sexuality, of course, is the first thing that uh, um, religion wanted to do away with because uh, when people are happily expressed in their sexuality, they really don't give a shit about, you know, obeying some laws that are very convenient, Oh, and of course, um, Steve says this very beautifully. He often talks in the in the in the context of um, tantric, some tantric schools, um, you know, so to speak, bad mouthing. That's a bad pun. Uh, ejaculation, right? Is that when you divide a man or a woman from their nature, then you can conquer. And that's, that's, that, that, that's true in Catholicism as it is in certain tantric traditions as it is in all, you know, it's like when you, when you turn the human against their human nature, that's where you can get in, right? So um, if you were raised 
and that's not to say that your family or whatever had devious uh, intentions, right? It's just taken from generation to generation. And the salvation in the form of being good uh, and being, you know, um, liked by the big daddy up there is, 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 uh, is very strong. And, and it's there. It's everywhere because of the way human beings are. So that said... It's totally understandable that you have conditioning that says your power is bad because, of course, when you have that much power, you're not easy to control. And that's, of course, also true. And uh, it's the adolescent, the destruction of, of, of power without responsibility. Right? It's the, 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 the sheer raw force of hormonal lust is, is horrendous, you know, for yourself and for everyone around it. Um, because it creates home-wrecking, uh, unwed mothers, <laughs> you know, other, other uh, not-so-good things. So there, there's a good and a bad to what you've been taught. Um, and it's probably generational, right? And epigenetic and whatever, right? Like there's familial, there's, there's so many layers to it. So you can do endless therapy, you will never get to the bottom of it. Um, it's good to know where things are coming from. A much, um, I don't want to say efficient, but a much more interesting way is to go through the body and use the areas where you um, have access to pleasure and power to um, explore a deeper layer of that. So, for instance... This, this will sound a bit weird, but just bear with me, right? So you've learned that food is pleasurable and comforting and life-giving, which is all true till, of course, it's too much and then it becomes destructive, right? But so that what that means... Freud's going to start rotating in his, in, his, uh, in his grave any moment now. But because what that means, of course, is that you have great access to oral pleasure. You just do, right? And you have great access to bodily pleasure. So when you, for a moment, imagine that you're eating something that's very pleasurable... All your senses get involved in that. There's the, the unwrapping it and tasting it and seeing it if you really allow it and not go into your whole, oh God, I shouldn't do this because blah, 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 right? But if, if you had a moment where the thing doesn't have any calories, right? And there's no repercussions, so to speak. And it's like, you, it starts here and it comes towards you and there's a smell and then your mouth starts watering and your mouth opens and your body starts opening. And you know, there's certain practices in, in the tradition I was trained in where you first inhale and then you you just taste but you don't swallow and then you swallow and then you trace it all the way down and you feel what it does to the body. This is usually done with alcohol. Um, but, you know, not everybody can drink alcohol. But but you, you train your whole body to become hypersensitive and receptive to the pleasure of the nourishment, right? And you soften your whole front surface of the body all the way down into the genitals to that which gives you pleasure. And you don't push against that, right? So there is an immediate access to pleasure that you can use to train your body to open 
sexually, so to speak, right? Then you can start working with, let's say, let's just, let's leave, you, leave your husband out of it for a moment. He, of course, said, would have great uses in that particular department. <laughs> right? But you, you'll start, uh, you know, touching the inside of your mouth with your own tongue or with a finger. And you start exploring what's pleasurable about that. And then when you feel that, oh, but God, you know, God says, then you'll just relax and you hang with that for a bit and you'll do the devotion. This is why it's good if you have a devotional meditation practice. This is actually not that hard to do because you have that ah! and then you dedicate it to God, so to speak. Right? And then you feel some more pleasure. Maybe you touch the front surface of your body. Maybe you drink something or eat something while you touch the front surface. When the, when the, oh God, God will smite me or whatever the hell is in your conditioning, you devote again the pleasure to God. And so you make your devotional practice be the portal into bodily pleasure. And so you eventually work your way all the way to giving yourself physical, so masturbation essentially, but, but you know, full body touching and then eventually getting to your genitals. And every time you feel that turn off, you stop, you relax, you do your devotional practice. Right, right. It's the allowing, the, the blooming of the body and with that, of course, the power. Right. So what you'll, what you'll train yourself is that you dedicate that blooming and the power to the divine. And so that's how you kind of skip the track, so to speak. And then you can see your husband as a manifestation of the divine. And you essentially do devotional practice with your husband as a manifestation of the divine. If, if you look at the way you've done sex or the way you've been taught sex from your childhood or from your upbringing, it's like sugar. And there's a whole other way of doing sex that's fat, so to speak. Right? And so it's a matter of essentially adapting to devotional sex versus um, religious or, or, or anti-religious sex. Right? And so you have to somehow in your mind, I can't, I can't give you the details. We would have to, you know really drilled out, but I'm sure you're very capable of doing that for yourself. You have to find that thing where you switch over, where the sugar sex is not an option, and you go on a steady diet of that other sex, and that might mean that you're fasting for a while, so to speak, and you're exploring, like, let's say, oral pleasure or whatever, as a, as a way to not do sugar sex but only do fat sex, <laughs> so to speak, right? Um, if you don't know what a ketogenic diet is, don't, don't, don't worry about it, right? She, she knows. So it's, it's, it's a different form of nourishment. It's a completely different form of deriving energy. And you will, if you just stick with what you're doing right now, you'll exactly, this, we talked about it this morning, right? You haven't had it yet because you've had detoxy stuff. But when you're fully in that, you have so much energy. You don't even know what the hell to do with it. Right? And it's the same with sex. You'll have the energy, and you'll have the power, and you'll have the creative force that then translates into everything. And it's not coming from the sugary place. Yes. So we could say sugar is the religious thing, 
meditation or devotional practice is the fat thing. Right? And so you're adapting to that and you just have to leave that alone. Which might mean that you have to do other practices, so to speak. Other engagements for a while till it's, it's, it's you know, you have adapted to that. <laughs> <laughs> 